Good evening, Patriots. It's February 2nd, 2020. Happy Groundhog Day. You are listening to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Tonight, we'll talk about the legality of secession, as well as a call for a third party on the left. All next on Living with Liberty. The topics of secession and forming a third party seem to be the hot topics of the day lately. I've covered both previously, and I'll do so again tonight, though from a bit of a different angle. I think both topics are coming from a place of emotion rather than rational thought. It's settling in that there will be no white knight Trump swooping in as our savior. It's setting in that Biden is ruling by royal decree, and even the sane Democrats are up in arms about it, because this isn't who they signed up for. This isn't who they voted for. Conservatives already knew how the Barnum and Biden circus was going to play out. We certainly didn't need Jen Psaki circling back with us in her Soviet hat to tell us exactly what was going to take place. The bottom line here is, We need to use the tools available to us, provided by the Constitution, as well as be willing to put aside the emotion of everything going on so we can engage in rational thought and chart a strategy going forward as a group, not an unhinged emotional response that leads to 75 million lone wolves out there doing their own thing. One of those things I view as a lone wolf emotional response is this jump to secession all of a sudden. And not all of a sudden, it's really been a simmering topic for a while, but it it seems to be bubbling up again. A while back, I did a show on the perils of secession and the things we need to be aware of in the case of states seceding. It's not as simple as one might think. There's a lot to state seceding, there's a lot that needs to be unwound and untied uh, if a state's going to, to leave the union. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that show um, on that I did earlier, I believe it was in December, on secession. Today I'm going to go over a little different angle on it. I'm going to go over the legal guidelines that would govern any secession of uh, a state. There are two schools of thought on the legality of secession. One is that the issue was settled with the Civil War and that it would take an act of Congress to allow the state to secede. The other thought here is that it is still inherent in the Constitution that the states have the right to secede without congressional approval. I'll go over both sides of the legal arguments. First, the Civil War ended all questions about the rights of states to secede. The late Antonin Scalia once wrote, if there was any constitutional issue resolved by the Civil War, it is that there is no right to secede. This is not entirely true. States can seek a mutually agreed-upon separation from the Union, and thanks to the Supreme Court ruling in 1868, of Texas versus White, there is a process for completing that separation. 
It is important to note this case held that the United States is an indestructible union from which no state can secede. We'll see here in a little bit as I go on that this case is actually uh, fraught with different contradictions. And if you go and read it, you'll you'll see that um, fact. And a lot of the legal scholars that uh, have written about the, the case notice such that there's a lot of contradictory arguments made in there by Chief Justice Selman Chase. But, you know, as we go on here, uh, this ruling, like I said, it has its contradictory moments. It, it does leave a path for a state to legally secede. The ruling language itself actually leaves two pathways as it relates to states that want to secede. The opinion, as written, states this. It says that there was no place for reconsideration or revocation except through revolution or through consent of the states. Now, kind of breaking this down, what that means is your pathways to secession are either a, you know, a revolution, think American Revolution, French Revolution, that sort of thing. Uh, some sort of, you know, implied, I think, violent uprising. Or you go to the representatives of, of the states or Congress to and ask for uh, separation from the union. You know, and I think since there isn't likely to be some sort of violent revolution, that leaves the consent of the states in, in terms of a pathway for a state being allowed to leave the union. Now, what this would entail is first that state gaining approval of both houses of Congress, and I believe that's a two-thirds uh, vote of both houses, and then getting ratification of the 38 states. So much in the way of, of a constitutional amendment, you'd also need that extra ratification of the states in order to leave. Now, really breaking this down, uh, looking at this from a, a reality check here, the chances of this happening are slim to none, as the Uniparty in Washington will never allow any of its fiefdoms to exit the kingdom. So I think, you know, this pathway to secession is, it's difficult and it's, you probably have a better chance of winning big in Vegas and, you know, having a state secede here. Uh, the other school of thought in terms of a uh, state's right to secede is that despite Texas versus white, the Constitution never actually created a consolidated nation. So really this opens it up for interpretation that there's still the right of a state to secede. The Constitution, you know, constitutionally speaking, it's, it's still allowed. Now, I have an older American Thinker article that I will link in the description box that outlines this idea in greater detail than what we'll go through here. I'll, I'll be hitting, you know, just some of the, the high points and high level thought here on, on this, um, this idea that constitutionally there's nothing stopping any state from, from leaving the Union. Now, the basis of this thought is the Tenth Amendment which reserves power and rights for the states. 
John C. Calhoun wrote that, uh, and this is his, uh, I quote here, I maintain that sovereignty is in its nature indivisible. It is the supreme power in a state. Now, what Calhoun is implying here is that states, though part of the Union, part of the United States, still re retain their full sovereignty as an individual entity, and that states still hold the rights of self-determination in terms of their participation in the Union of the United States. So they have the option, you know, under the argument of the Tenth Amendment, reserving power and rights for the states to leave the, the Union whenever they may feel like it without needing permission from Congress and a ratification of three quarters of the states. Now, I would argue under this logic, some states could already be viewed as having uh, done a sort of soft secession. I think of California as an example. You know, really illegal immigration is still by federal law forbidden, yet California is you know, by all intents and purposes, a sanctuary state. Many states now have legalized marijuana, though it is still banned at a federal level. States are exercising their sovereign rights and, and sovereign powers under the 10th Amendment and seem to be ignoring federal laws they don't like or don't suit the ideology of the voters in that state. Truthfully, I think that this is you know, fine. I Tenth Amendment said reserves the power for the states. So, you know, constitutionally, um, a lot of these federal laws are and should be considered states' rights issues, and should be up to that individual state as to how they want to govern their people and what the people in those states want to allow within their state. Uh, you know, if if California and the voters there want to. Uh, you know, allow it to be a sanctuary state, so be it. States want to legalize mar marijuana, fine. It's a state's call. It's not really a federal bureaucracy call. Now, I'll reiterate a bit now my position from my power uh, prior podcast. I kind of started into that already. Um, but I believe our best route is to call a convention of the states and to rein in the federal government to really narrow it in scope, to kill off a lot of the bureaucracies that have crept in over the decades and centuries um, that just are unnecessary in terms of governing the land. We just really need to return the federal government to its original intention of making laws that govern the interaction and interstate commerce Control the economy through the treasury, so, you know, thinking a, a single currency, basically. Providing for national security and making foreign policy and trade deals on behalf of the states. And then, then that leaves the states to be sovereign and to govern themselves as they wish. California and New York want to be socialist hellholes with open borders? Fine, that can be their choice. You know, as we've seen, people aren't really going to stick around. The, the ones that pay the taxes aren't really going to stick around too long 
uh, you know, in that kind of uh, environment. It's also fine from the aspect, if that's what they want to do, fine. You guys figure out how to fund it yourselves. There's no bailouts from the rest of the country. I don't want New California, New York, Washington, Oregon. I don't want their, their hands in my pocket. I got enough with my own state and the federal government. I don't need extra states with their hands in my pockets, too, because they can't manage their own money. You know, and I, I think you look at it like this. Once you remove the federal handouts from these states and let them basically govern themselves with the federal government way, uh, you know, paired way back, I think different choices get made in those states. I think the, the safety net of a bailout from the federal governor, government not being there, it, it causes some different choices with the financials of that state and how the, that state chooses to spend its money. And I'll say this too for my California and New York friends and any other uh, friends out there that, that live in, in liberal hellholes. We'll take you here in Wisconsin until the dust settles in your home state. You know, come in about May or, or June. No, it's, uh, we got a lot of snow on the ground right now. Uh, you know, as I look at it, shrinking the government while maintaining the Union of States is going to be a much better option than states seceding willy-nilly. There's too much, like I said, there's too much that we need to untangle at this point to have states exiting the Union. Now, onto the third party topic here. It, it was an interesting, um, an interesting find as I was doing some research here on third party, uh, just creating a third party again. Um, a lot of that, uh, again, I think is coming from a place of emotion, but it's not all emotion on our side, as we'll see here. I, you know, I did a show on this. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the, the perils of starting a third party, I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to that one. Um, you know, bottom line, basic math says you, you need a four-party system in order for it to be viable and, and you know, have a real shot if, if we wanted a patriot party, if you will, to have any shot at winning any sort of national election. Well, I, I ran across an article on the left here that outlines the desire for a progressive party, a third party on the left as well. Now, I'll give you a full disclosure on this. I will link it into this, in the description box, but I'll give you a full disclosure on this. It's It has the logic of the 16-year-olds that Democrats want voting. Um, it's, it's pretty light on forward thinking and logic, but still makes some okay points that are, are relevant to the discussion here and outlines the fact that even on the left, there's rumblings of just general displeasure with the Democrat wing of the Uniparty. Now, I think, like I said, it was an interesting article. Even if I look at it and you know, I encourage you to, to read it, it's always good to see what's going on on the other side as well. But you know, some of it was a bit fantasy. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, get into that in a minute here. So what it really boils down to is progressives are not sold on the Biden Harris circus either. Matthew Ho wrote this article I'm referencing here. And in it, the first paragraph, he right away calls for progressives to exert the same pressure on Biden in terms of mass protests 
and direction and direct action, or whatever that means, as they did on Trump. Ho states that a Biden administration won't care about your progressive tweets, emails, or petitions. He says Biden offered nothing to progressives in his campaign and says the progressive vote is not just expected, but considered obligatory. Where have we heard that one before? A, a certain group's vote is considered obligatory for the Democrats. Um, it, it knows no bounds, I guess. And he goes on and says it's uh, you know, not worthy, and this is talking about Biden-Harris, that and the progressive vote isn't really worthy of paying attention to by the DNC. Now, Matthew here makes, uh, he actually seems to be a full-blown commie. If, if you read the article, you're, you'll see it more probably than in that just little snippet I gave. Since, as I view it, Beijing Biden uh, was more than progressive enough. I think he's more so than what even Democrats were thinking. But Matthew Ho here has one point I do agree with him on. That the DNC, RNC, Uniparty does not care. He got that part right. They don't care. Both parties are pandering grifters who only want power and really are only interested in what they need to do to keep that corporate money coming in and to keep your vote for them so they can stay in power. Now, kind of getting on to where Matthew Ho is dreaming a bit. He talks of a far-left party. I'm okay with that. Let's uh, let's split that vote, and we'll keep ours together on the right. Who states that the target for this far-left party is the 25-plus million voters who vote Democrat? Again, I say, go ahead. Yeah, take them. That's good. And I'm, you know, I'm fine with that. Split that uh, vote up. And now we're we're getting into where he's he's dreaming a bit here as he says that this leftist party should also target the tens of millions of GOP voters who are looking for economic support and a chance to have what their parents and grandparents had. This I don't see happening. Uh, we conservatives on the right, I say conservatives, not, you know, we're not, I don't think Republicans for the most part, we, that's just the lesser of two evils, I think, as we view it. But at any rate, I, I don't see this happening. We do not want handouts. We do not want socialism. And that's not going to give us what our parents and grandparents had. This is where he's getting light on his logic here. You know, if we wanted socialism, we would have all voted for Joe Biden. Joe Biden would have had 155 million votes or whatever it ended up being. That's just not the case. So he's, he's dreaming a little bit there if he thinks that you're going to get tens of millions of disenfranchised uh, disenfranchised, I guess might be the right word here, Republican voters to all of a sudden swing from, you know, anywhere from center right to uh, solidly, you know, right conservative all the way to a far left party. That's, that's a pipe dream. And here, here's where else, um, you know, he goes on uh, dreaming a little bit here. He starts talking about the five to 7 million third party voters and a sizable chunk of non-voters swinging over to this far-left Communist Party. <laughs> Good luck on both accounts there, Comrade Ho. Um, he thinks that through all this, we you'd see a reduction in the GOP to where it becomes a minority party, and we'd have then a rise of some socialist party and the Democrats. That's not going to happen. Uh, like I said, you're, you're not swinging tens of millions of Republican voters. 
you're not getting non-voters out there. There's a reason that people aren't voting out there, and I'm fairly certain your far-left pipe dream socialist utopia party is not going to all of a sudden get those people off their couches on voting day and go out and cast a vote for some communist candidate. It's just, it's just not going to happen. This is where that logic of of the, the 16-year-old voter the Democrats want come in. You know, we've already seen, too, here that the Democrats, I think, understand this. They understand that splitting the party vote isn't a good thing. That's why we've seen them shoot to Karl Marx territory here in order to stave off this split in their party and the, the split in the party vote. The Dems understand that when they need to circle the wagons or face losing, losing power, you circle the wagons. You, if, if that means you're, you're shooting way over into Karl Marx territory in terms of ideology, then I guess that's what you do. Uh, unfortunately, people didn't believe that that's what's going to happen. And, and, you know, we're facing a little bit of an uphill battle right now. We conservatives need to figure that out. We need to realize that when it's time to circle the wagons, we circle the wagons. And, you know, if that circling the wagons means that people like Mittens Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins are on the outside looking in, fine, go to the Democrat Party. You, you guys basically are anyway. We need to figure out that we need to think strategically. We need to play the game as the zero-sum game that the Democrats play. We need to band together and, and go at this as a team. We need to put to rest this notion of a third party. We need to learn the lesson of the election of 1912. We need to take back the Republican Party as the party that upholds liberty and freedom and conservative values. We need to put emotion aside and think logically and strategically. We need to put aside our desires for individuality. I think Dan Bongino made this point on his show last week that as freedom-loving, liberty-loving conservatives, we value the individuality. And at times that's to our detriment when it comes time to organize and we're a little bit slower to organize. We need to learn to put that aside for a bit. And when it's time to organize and work together as a team, we do that. Yes, we love our liberty. We love all our different ideas. But there's times where it's okay to have that collective consensus mentality when you're trying to achieve a common goal. And in this case, our common goal is getting back to the roots of this country being ruled by our Constitution. This is how we will win the battle. It's banding together, putting aside our individuality for a moment, and playing as a team. Friends, that's my show for this evening. Thank you for listening. I'd be grateful if you would please subscribe to my show, share it with friends and family, and if your listening platform allows it, please leave a positive review. It helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my podcast with your friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. Also, I'd be grateful if you subscribed to my podcast and signed up for notifications. 
It'll help you stay up to date with Living with Liberty. With Parlor Down, I can be found on MeWe by searching Living with Liberty. And I also now have a Telegram channel. The handle there is at Living with Liberty. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.